Uh, if you might remember, there was um, a commercial by UPS not too long ago that asked a question, what can Brown do for you? And the whole idea was, we can do a lot more than you think, is often what was the idea behind that. We're coming into the end of this particular section of Mark's Gospel, and it's the end of the section of counting the cost, where it's just bringing all of these great pictures together, and what Jesus is going to ask is what can he do for you? In fact, you'll notice in in Mark chapter 10 and verse 36, you'll notice Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? And then you notice it again in chapter 10 and verse 51. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? As we begin to move through this section, I would like for you to consider for a moment if you had your opportunity with Jesus and he asked you the question, what do you want me to do for you? What would be your answer? It's your one chance. And he gives you that one opportunity. Now, what can I do for you? What do you want from me? We'll look back at that question at the end of the lesson. As was just read for us in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, you will notice that Jesus describes what he is going to do. He describes now for the third time the events that surround what is going to happen regarding his death. You'll notice in verse 32, they're on the road and they're going up to Jerusalem. We, we've made note, note of it in the past few lessons in the Gospel of Mark that we are seeing that this is the final trip to Jerusalem. This is the final time that he's making his his way. We are approaching the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and he's on the way to Jerusalem and you'll notice the response of everyone in regards to the fact that he's going to Jerusalem. In verse 32 it says that that those who are walking with him they are amazed and that those who are following Jesus are afraid. You can just kind of visualize this. Here we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way. And the mass of crowds that we have seen everywhere Jesus grows, there are crowds in every single place, everywhere he goes. And it says right now, all the crowds are stunned. They're just absolutely amazed by the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And the followers of Jesus, they're actually afraid because we're going to Jerusalem. And Mark has not spent a lot of time talking about the things that have happened in Jerusalem up to this point. But it's pretty evident from verse 32 that the connection is because Jesus is going to Jerusalem, crowds are stunned by that. They're just amazed that he would do that. And the followers of Jesus are afraid of that. They're absolutely terrified of that. And the reason why is because Jerusalem is the place of opposition. Every time Jesus has gone there, they've tried to kill him. Every time that they he, he goes there, there is opposition and resistance and even attempts on his life. And I believe that's why the crowds are just stunned. Why would you be going back to Jerusalem again? You know how that's going to go. Why would you be going back there? And the followers of Jesus, the disciples, they know that doesn't go well for them either. And going back to Jerusalem, that's not a safe place to go. If you remember the other gospel accounts, you have one of them saying, well, let's go with them so that we can die with him. They know this is not a safe journey to go to Jerusalem. And yet they go. And what is fascinating is that while the crowds are amazed and the followers are afraid, notice Jesus doesn't alleviate any of that. 
In verse 33, he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus doesn't go, don't worry, it's going to be fine. He goes, yeah, you're exactly right. This is going to go really badly. This is exactly what's going to happen. Here's what's going to go on. It's not the first time Jesus told him that. But now with even greater detail and greater specificity, essentially telling the disciples, I'm not going to alleviate your fears. I'm going to die. I'm going to go. They're going to reject me. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. And then after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. It's a pretty fascinating Discussion that you would think that would ensue on the way to Jerusalem, right? You're like, man, that would give you a lot to think about. That'd give you a lot to talk about, about what's about to happen as we enter Jerusalem. Notice verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> Your kids ever done that? (laughs) Um, We would like blank check permission of what we're about to ask you. So don't say no to what I'm about to say. (laughs) What an interesting thing to, to, to start off with. Here is Jesus with his declaration for the third time. Here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. James and John run up ahead and catch up to him. Now, Jesus... Don't say no, we're about to say. We want want you to say yes to anything we say. Will you do that? (laughs) And verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. (laughs) One of the things that I think is fascinating about Mark's gospel is Mark's gospel has never painted the disciples as making insightful spiritual decisions. I think it's fascinating that that's the the framework of Mark's gospel. Over and over again, the disciples are shown to be lacking in their understanding and lacking spiritual sight and spiritual perception. And here it is again. Here is this, this big bombshell of this is what's about to happen. It says they're on their way up to Jerusalem. That's the incline up the 3,000 feet to get up to Jerusalem. They're walking that winding road up to Jerusalem. And so here's what they're going to ask. Now, can we sit right hand and left hand (laughs) in glory when you come in your kingdom? And I think it's interesting what Jesus does with that. And notice what Jesus does with that in verse 30. Angel says, you don't know what you are asking. (laughs) You don't understand what that is going to look like. You don't understand what that means. And notice what Jesus does is he's going to try to help him understand in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Essentially, do you remember what I just told you a few moments ago about what's going to happen? Do you understand what you are asking? Do you understand that what it means to be in glory with the Lord means drinking the same cup that Jesus is about to drink? And obviously Jesus is not talking about the refreshment when they get to the top of the 
Mount of Zion here to get to Jerusalem. It's a cup of suffering that lies ahead. It is suffering and death that is that weighs upon him and that they are about to approach. And the question to ask these disciples is, do you understand that glory is going to come through suffering? That has been a big theme of Mark's Gospel. We have seen again and again that the idea of discipleship is about carrying a cross, about willing to suffer, about forsaking whatever we must forsake to follow Him. And here now Jesus makes it very pointed. Do you understand what that looks like to be with me in glory? Are you willing to drink the same cup that I'm about to drink? Are you willing to be baptized in the same baptism that's just about to happen to me? An immersion in suffering, an immersion in pain, an immersion in death. Are you ready for that? Do you understand what lies ahead? Notice what James and John say in verse 39. They said to him, we're able. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe they understood exactly what they were saying when they said that. I I can see that. Jesus is. do you understand what's about to happen? They're signing up and saying, yeah, let's go. Or maybe they don't fully understand all that's going to be entailed behind that. But you'll notice that Jesus agrees with them in, in, in verse 39. And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized... You will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice here Jesus brings it all together and say, I'm not going to be dealing that out. It is prepared for those to whom it's been prepared. And I think the idea behind that is, is those who will go with him to the cross, those who will go with him to suffering. Those who are willing to go to that very depth and that very length. All that it would be required of a disciple to follow Jesus, to go with Him every step of the way. Are you willing to give whatever you must give to follow Me? I must say how great it is that you see James and John say, we can do that. We can absolutely do that. Notice what comes out of that (laughs) in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, They began to be indignant at James and John. (laughs) That is also an interesting response. They're now angry with James and John. And based on the fact of what Jesus now has to teach all of his disciples, you get the impression that James and John beat the other ten to the punch. (laughs) This seems to be the idea. They're angry. How dare you ask him? We were going to do that. You beat us to it. They are not happy with James and John, and it doesn't appear to be a righteous anger because Jesus doesn't speak that way. Notice how Jesus responds to all this. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
can imagine the bickering that is ensuing over all of this as they're arguing over being greatest in the kingdom. This is not the first time this has happened and discussing greatness. And Jesus has already spoken about greatness earlier in Mark's gospel. And notice he brings it around again and he simply gives them a reminder. You know how worldly rulers and and worldly leaders act. You know what they do with authority. You know what they do with power. It's not too hard if I asked you, what do world leaders do with power and authority? Do most of them all do great, wonderful, good things? Or do they oppress? <laughs> do they use their power for selfish purposes? Do they do things for themselves rather than others? Well, that's what Jesus points out is, you know how it happens in the world. You know how the world operates using authority for their own power, for their own selfish interests, for their own desires. You know the way the world is. And then you understand when he tries to remind them essentially what you're doing when you argue this way and you're worried about these things is you're acting the same way that we're not supposed to be a people like what you see in the world who are blinded by power and ego arrogance and selfishness notice that jesus says there in verse 43 but it shall not be so among you the way you see the world behave That's not supposed to be us. And the way they talk, that's not supposed to be us. And the way they handle power, it's not the way we do it. And the way they handle authority, it's not how a Christian uses it. That's what Jesus drives in right here. Is that's absolutely how we are not to be. That leadership is not about oppression and force and coercion, twisting arms and making people do things. That's not what it means to be a follower. And that our actions would not look like the world. And our, our words would not look like the world. That we would stand very different in that. We would be nothing like the way the world operates when it comes to power and might and influence. We would never use such influence and such authority and such might or power for any kind of selfish gain or purpose. And you will notice how Jesus underlines that when he says there in verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be a slave. If you want greatness and you want all that is truly important... Notice the two different words. Be a servant and be a slave. The two different words. Be a person who serves and be a person who has no rights. Be a slave. That's the idea. That's how we would look at things. Is that leadership, authority, power. It's not about putting ourselves forward or putting ourselves first. It would always be about using any kind of leadership, any kind of influence, any kind of authority, or any kind of power to serve other people, to be a slave of all. If you're with us with Wednesday night over the past few weeks as we went back through and into uh, 1 Corinthians and talking about what you see the Apostle Paul laying out there about forfeiting rights, forfeiting privilege. Why not be defrauded? Why not give up what you have 
for the sake of the gospel, becoming all things to all people that we might by all means save some. This is what Jesus is driving at to these disciples. Are you becoming all things to all people when you think that way, when you put yourself first, when you use authority that way? And even Jesus uses the example of himself as the ultimate example in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There is no greater picture of what it looks like, of what Jesus is calling for us to be. To think about the picture of here is the Lord over all creation. If there's anybody who truly possesses power and authority, it is Jesus. He's ruler over everything. And he says, you know what? I didn't come to be served. If anybody had a right to come and be served by people, it's him. Anybody could come along and his message could have been, none of you have a right to be served but me because I am God. So serve me. And all you quit serving uh, yourselves. That were in the Bible, I'd go, that makes sense. I can go with that. That's not what he says. He says, not even I came to be served, but to serve. Well, that's radical. Because I don't have remotely any power like him. (laughs) Or any authority like him. Or any basis like he does. And the one with all authority heaven and earth, the one who is creator over all things, the one who has all power and might says, I'm not here to be served by people, but to serve people. That's the whole idea. And please think about the extent of that, because here's what I know we like to do with that, because I like to do this. So that means I'm going to serve the people that I like. (laughs) All right. I'm going to serve people who serve me, who do good by me, who I like, who treat me good. They're friends of mine. Okay, you know, they serve, I serve, we serve each other. It's all good like that. Please think about the model of Jesus. How's everybody been doing in serving God, the arrival of Jesus, you know? Jesus came and everybody served him. And Jesus said, because you've served me so diligently and righteously, I'm going to die for you. Well, that's why Romans 5 is so powerful. While we were still enemies, Christ died. While we were still weak and helpless, while we were still sinners, This is Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Even to the enemies, people who are rejecting Jesus, Jesus says, I come to serve. That's why I'm here. It eliminates any disclaimer that we often want to make as to who we will serve and who we will not serve. Who we will do good by and who we will not do good by. Who we will refrain from using our authority over versus others that we will absolutely execute our rights and our privileges and our power and our authority. Jesus says, now do you see me just only picking and choosing certain people to do that for? 
And yet so often that is the challenge for us is because we want to serve those who serve us. We want to serve those who do right by us. We want to serve those who do good by us. And that's not being a Christian. If you remember, Jesus said that's what the world does. (laughs) world does that. Everybody does that. There's no problem with reciprocity to people who do good by you. You do good back. Everybody does that. That's not being a light. That's not being different. Being different is being a light when they're being dark. Being different is speaking differently when they're not saying nice things. And they're not doing nice things. And they're not behaving as righteous people. And we still do good anyway. That's the model Jesus is laying out. You guys are arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom. You failed to understand the last lesson I gave you if you had a Bible two chapters ago where he told them it's about being a servant. We want to follow Jesus. We must serve. We become slaves of him to follow him. That's what is what a disciple looks like. That's what a disciple is. In fact, to push that even further, when he says at the end of verse 45, he gave his life a ransom for many. That word ransom is a rich word. It is very much a picture of a price of release. You are setting a captive or a slave free. We, we still barely use this word. Probably most frequently when it comes to like setting free by a price that a kidnapper will say, here's the ransom. You watch a movie and they'll say there's a ransom price. So we kind of still have that idea. What's the idea? You must pay this to set the individual free. Here's Jesus going, I came to set people free and the price is my life. I'm becoming a servant to all. I'm becoming a slave to all. I'm becoming the ransom for many. I'm giving myself up. I'm giving my very life. And there is nothing that you would look at in the, in the events of Jesus regarding his death. And you'd say, well, that was for his own selfish gain and good. No, it was completely for our good. Do we not measure service based on how much I'm going to get out of it? That's how we often weigh it in the balance. How much I will give and serve and do for others is based on how much benefit do I get out of that. I just ask you to think about what was the great personal benefit that Jesus obtained by leaving heaven, taking on the form of a slave, living the life that he lives, and being executed by his creation. You see, we can't measure service in that regard. We can't talk about what it means to serve and give ourselves and follow Jesus in terms of, well, is it worth it? Is there some tangible benefit that I receive right now? Is there something I'm going to get out of this? That's a terrible way for us to think about it. It's a very worldly way to think about it. I want to bring in now the final section because this is really the capstone to these three chapters. And what you see here is now the right picture as the question is asked again. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Notice we're getting already a a, a tone, a foreshadowing. 
Because you notice that there's not really a good reason to say in verse 46, they came to Jericho and then he left Jericho. Well, why not just leave that sentence out? You didn't say anything about what happened in Jericho. You just said he arrived in Jericho and then he left. Except Jericho is the utmost significance. Jericho is all about the beginnings of God fulfilling his promises. When you have in the Old Testament coming into Jericho, that first city with Israel, it is now victory time. It is now the promises of God being fulfilled and being accomplished for the nation. Jesus comes into Jericho. It is now time for the promises to arrive. We are at the moment. In fact, you scan your eyes forward. Chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. We are ready for conquest. We are ready for victory. God is coming and He is going to rescue His people. And so Mark says, we've moved through Jericho. Here is this great crowd still following. Verse 47. And when he, speaking of Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I want you just to think about that scene for a minute. (laughs) Just think about how amazing this is. So Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He leaves Jericho. He's now got a a, a huge incline as he's going up this, this, uh, this mountain up to Jerusalem. And great crowds are following him. And please just think about the insignificance of the individual who's crying out. On a physical, worldly level. There is a blind beggar that is just sitting there. And he hears that it's Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's the first time we've seen this messianic title. Son of David comes all the way out of 2 Samuel 7. The one who would arrive, a descendant of David, was going to come and he's going to save the people. This man has an understanding of that and he's crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. What are the crowds doing? Would you knock it off and be quiet? I mean, they're, they're, they're looking at him going, You are not worthy of Jesus' time. Pipe down. We're going to Jerusalem. Knock it off. We're not stopping for you. You're a blind beggar. Who do you think you are? This is the Messiah. This is the one. I want you to notice verse 49. As much as there are so many great things in this text, I think this one is just still stunning. Well, verse 48 says they're rebuking him and telling him to be silent. Verse 49 says Jesus stopped. And I hope you just kind of let the weight of that sink in. He's doing exactly what he was trying to teach his disciples a moment ago. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, I'm too important for you. I'm too glorious, too impressive, too amazing, too majestic. I don't have time for you. I have greater things. I'm trying to save the world. Blind beggar, stop slowing me down. Jesus stops. Whole crowd around him telling this guy to be quiet. Jesus stops. 
Verse 49, he says to him, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you after the crowd is going, be quiet. Be... Okay, come on, come on. <laughs> you know? You're telling him to stop to yelling that, okay, he's calling for you. Get up, take heart. It's okay. Come on. He's going he's gonna to do something. Verse 50, he throws off his cloak. He sprang up and came to Jesus. And here's the question. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. What do you want me to do for you? Verse 51, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus stops. They tell the blind beggar, he's calling for you. Go ahead. He seems to now dispossess the one thing he owns. He throws off his cloak. He leaps up and he is now going to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Very simple answer. His answer is not, would you please tell people to give more money to me because I'm blind and I need help? You know, you think about a lot of things he probably could have asked at this moment. Tell people to be nicer to me. They were just yelling at me a minute ago. That wasn't very nice. They were telling me I was wrong for calling upon you. Would you rebuke them? What do you want me to do for you? One thing. I need to see. Lord, I need to see. And this is a beautiful picture because what we are seeing in Jesus is the proof from this gospel That Jesus is the hope of the world, who has compassion on the poor, who has compassion on the outcast, who gives sight to the blind, restoration to heal. Beautiful pictures again and again of the work of the Savior. We have connected up Isaiah and Mark all throughout the way, and now we get the fullness of Isaiah here. Isaiah 35, verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm feeble knees, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We have seen all of those images except the blind scene and now we get that miracle. Fullness of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to give sight. Jesus has come to save. He has come to give His life a ransom for many. He has come to heal the very beginning of the lesson, I asked you a question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? It is so easy for us to miss what the right question or right response or right thing to ask Jesus is. It is easy for us to think, well, I need Jesus to give me power. I need Jesus to give me wealth. I need Jesus to give me health. I need Jesus to fix my family, change my marriage, give me a better job. Do what I want you to do. Give me what I request. To 
be like the disciples James and John. We just want Jesus to do whatever we ask. Just don't say no. Whatever comes to my mind and come to my heart, you just say yes. Blank check, please. You know, be my genie in the bottle. Do whatever I want. Give me my wishes. And unfortunately, in thinking about the question, what do you really want Jesus to do for you? We have the tendency to think of Jesus and start thinking about physical problems and physical issues. We start thinking about physical difficulties. We start thinking about ourselves. Here's James and John. They come running up to Jesus. We want a blank check. We want whatever we're about to ask of you. And Jesus goes, ask away. What do you want me to do for you? Well, give me glory. And so Jesus has to explain that's not what it's about. It's not about selfish pursuits. It's not about glorifying self. It's so easy for us to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, make me happy. Give me comfort. Give me ease. Make my life better. We think of things in such selfish ways because we're focused on this world. What makes this the capstone and the ending of this teaching section is what the gospel wants us to see is notice the blind beggar understood his condition. When presented with the opportunity, he knew the one thing he needed. This is contrasted with what we saw last week with the rich young man. The rich young man thinks, I'm doing great. I'm doing a good job. I'm doing just fine. I've kept all the law since my youth. And Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions and follow me. And he hangs his head disheartened and goes goes away because he had many possessions. He didn't see his condition. He didn't see the problem. He didn't really see what he needed. He thought he did, but he really didn't. The same thing with James and John with these disciples. Seems that they're all arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They've done it before. It seems now they're mad at James and John. They get ahead of the question. We all wanted to sit at your right hand and left hand when you come into glory. What is the one thing I can do for you? And notice that they don't ask or answer the right thing either in what they're discussing with Jesus. Here's Jesus talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. And they're talking about greatness. Again, missing the point. What you see in this blind beggar is truly amazing because he knew a very simple truth. This is Jesus, the son of David, and I need to see. The one simple thing he understood, and that was the thing that he requested. Our problem is that we don't have enough money. Our problem is not that we don't have good jobs. Our problem is not all the things that we often identify as problems in our lives. That's not our problem. We have this huge overwhelming problem that we often ignore. We're blind and we can't see. And we'd like to think because we've been Christians for such a long time, surely we're not the blind ones. James and John and the other ten have been with Jesus for years. In terms of the chronology of Mark, Jesus dies next week. 
That's where we're at. They've been with him. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. And they don't even understand yet what they should be asking for. They don't understand how to handle such a request. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That we think that we see, but often we don't. It's not an uncommon problem. Listen to the problem Jesus identifies to one of the seven churches of Asia. See, he writes there and speaks to them. He speaks of them and says, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's a church. And Jesus says, you don't see your problem. You think you can see just fine and you can't see the problem. You don't see that you're blind. I submit to you that as Christians, one of our critical needs in our first step really in being a disciple of Jesus is to realize that we are blind, but that is not just something you do one time in your life. That every day we need to wake up and start with our own spiritual blindness. That we don't see as we ought to see. That we need to recognize how easily we are blinded by the world. We're blinded by our desires. We're blinded by the God of this world. We're blinded by our fears. We're blinded by selfish ambition. We're blinded by life. Think about all the different ways we are blinded. So many things have a pressure and a transforming process on us that we are blinded by. And we don't even see it. We don't see everything that influences us. And we think we're seeing God clearly when in fact we're not at all. We don't see how we're blinded by the world and blinded by desires and blinded by selfishness and blinded by so many things that are pushing us the wrong direction. Our big concern every day, in fact, I would say our big cry every day needs to be, Lord, help me see. Help me see clearly. And we can only get that sight by recognizing our spiritual blindness, recognizing our disability. You love that in John 9. John 9, Jesus ends after using that blind man there as a, as a teaching tool. He ends by telling those religious leaders, those Pharisees, because you say you see, that's why you remain in your blindness. When we think we see, woe to us. The moment we think, I've got my spiritual goggles on, square 2020, look out. That's not the mind or the mission of Christ who said, we serve all, it's not about us, and how easy it is for us to lose sight of that. And so I ask you this morning to look at your life carefully. Are we seeing Jesus clearly when it comes to our faith? What does our faith look like? 
if we're really honest and we're really with great clarity thinking about where we stand before God, our faith before God, our life before God, how does that look? Does it look like what Jesus is describing, that the path to glory is the path of sacrifice, not the path of comfort and ease and happiness, but about giving of ourselves, becoming a servant of all and a slave of all? What does our faith look like? Are we seeing Jesus clearly when it comes to that? Or do we sit back blindly and accept, no, no, I'm doing just fine. I'm not seeing the problem. Are we seeing Jesus clearly when it comes to friends and family? So often we cannot clearly see what we are supposed to be as parents or as children or as husbands and as wives. We not clearly see what we're supposed to be as a fellowship of believers together and how we work together and serve one another. Do we see those things clearly like Jesus wants us to see? To see our roles that we're supposed to have and how we operate in those roles. Or are we blinded by the world? Blinded by the culture? Do we see Jesus clearly when it comes to our sins? This is hard because I think our tendency is when it comes to our sins, when it comes to our failures, when it comes to our problems, is that I want to say it's everybody else's fault but mine. I don't want to own my sins. I don't want to confess them. I don't want to repent of them. It's all your fault, don't you know? (laughs) And I like to be blinded by that. It's, It's not me, it's you. (laughs) and unfortunately it's so easy to forget that ultimately what God is trying to point out again and again in the scriptures is that we're the problem you and I have the problem we are spiritually blind and we cannot see and the problem remains because then we go about life thinking we can see so clearly when we really cannot see The whole of these three chapters all end sitting on this blind beggar who realizes he's a blind beggar. That's supposed to be us. We are the blind beggars coming before Jesus and saying, I need to see. I need to see your glory. I need to see your way. I need to see your paths. And may we see more clearly who he is and what he's called us to be and how he's called us to change, to be a servant of all and a slave to all so that we can be with him for eternity. We'll sing this song to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. To truly just take introspection. How are we doing with our sight? It's easy to think because we're disciples we see. James and John didn't see. The ten don't see. Over and over again they don't see. A man who's been keeping the law as best as he thinks he can doesn't see when he comes to Jesus. But a blind beggar sitting on the road, he understands. Jesus stops for him. What was the answer to the question in your heart when I asked, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And I hope now you will every day answer that I need to see better and better. Won't you come to Jesus this morning? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?